So, okay. But those were playing Age of Empires back in the day. That was when the, the family computer was was right in the living room. And, uh, you know, everything oh, yeah. I did was was watched and scrutinized and for sure. <laughs> like some crazy stories, you know, especially that old dial-up internet. If you woke up in the middle of the night and you tried to do anything on the computer. So like, loud. Right. It's like throwing like the blanket over the modem, trying yeah. to like keep the volume down. I don't, I still don't understand why that thing, why it was so freaking loud, but it was. We had, so. we had the same thing growing up in France where internet took a few more years to, to show up on our end. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember the ADSL hookup. That that sound yeah. like it's it's drilled into my memory. It is. It totally is. And uh, man, I uh, I don't know. I I don't miss dial up internet at all. Having to like negotiate with my mom, like can can I get on before you call your friends for the rest of the evening? You know those sort of <laughs> things. Totally Absolutely. different life now, man. Now the internet is everywhere and on your phone and in your pocket. So, but uh, anyway. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of I Came With Fire podcast. Tonight, we are here with uh, Felix Tabari of Troop, Activist Investing Troop. Um, I'll let you kind of explain a little bit what Troop is, and then um, we'll kind of talk about, you know, I know you. Uh, we talked before, you're from France, I just want to hear a little bit about how you grew up, but Felix, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is a, a topic that I'm really interested in, got excited about um, when I first learned about it, so I'm really interested to hear, like, what is Troop and where did you decide to begin doing this? For sure. Um, first of all, Brandon, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, it's uh, an exciting opportunity to talk a little bit about Troop, of course, but also this space that we're building in, which is a uh, mm-hmm. kind of a cool space. Um, not very well known, but once you start to get into yeah. it, uh, so many different rabbit holes to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So where did we get started? I think most people listening might remember um, the GameStop moment in time um, that took place, oh, yeah. uh, you know, a little over two years ago. Oh yeah! Uh, and for anyone who hasn't seen the movie that recently came out about it, by the way, highly recommend. It's quite fun. I think it's called uh, "Have Money." It is. Uh, I really want to see it. It was a. Uh, it was a good time, um, and it and it does relate. Cool. Uh, I think a lot of what happened there pretty accurately. But anyways, um, that's good. There was this, you know, while the GameStop episode was unfolding, there was one part of that story that really caught my attention, which is that uh, the shareholders and people who bought shares of GameStop um, overwhelmingly decided to exercise their right to vote mm-hmm. as shareholders. Right. And this is not something that I think we associate a lot with owning shares um, in this country or frankly in a lot of other countries that, that have open stock markets. But when you yeah. own a share of a company, you typically at least once a year have the right to weigh in um, on a couple decisions. And those decisions mm-hmm. include who's going to be on the board, um, which auditing firm are we going to hire to you know, audit our books, um, you know, are we gonna are we gonna sign off on the the pay package for 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 the executives and the company, and then occasionally a whole host of other topics, um, shareholder proposals, uh, resolutions, etc., letters, th- things that essentially now that we have all the shareholders' attention, let's talk about these things. How do we feel about them as a group of people who technically own this company? Right and you know, it, it 
I, I was familiar with the concept of, of shareholder voting, but in a kind of a different way. I started my career um, off of Wall Street at Bloomberg. Uh, mm. You know, Bloomberg are the makers of, of this machine slash software package that essentially revolutionized the biggest market in the world, which is the bond market. Uh, way, way bigger okay. than the equity market, but it's closed off to most people. Um, mm-hmm. And in the bond market, you basically needed, you know, down to the second prices on various bonds, corporate bonds, sovereign bonds, et cetera. So in the U.S., those are more commonly known as like treasury bonds, et cetera, right? Um, right. 10 year, five year, 20 year, et cetera. Um, and, and when I was at Bloomberg, the first group of people that um, I was told to go sell the Bloomberg terminal to were mm-hmm. uh, hedge funds that do a specific thing in the financial markets called activist investing. And activist okay. investing is essentially when you buy up shares in a company, you try to own as much of it as you can, but typically most activists mm-hmm. on average own around 5 6%. And then what you do gotcha. is you build um, a thesis and you say, hey, I think this company can be made to be more valuable if we just implement a couple of these changes. So let's swap out some member on the board or let's sell off this unit or typically also frustratingly, let's fire a bunch of people, whatever it might be. Um, hedge funds that do activism, shareholder activism, they, have, they, they pick a company, they buy up a bunch of shares, they have a thesis about how to make it better. And critically, they need support from the rest of the shareholders. And we realized, well, you know, the, the big other thing during GameStop was, a ton of people discovered uh, owning and opening a brokerage account on their phone, on the computer. It's, it's never been easier than today. And so maybe there's something Robin at Hood. the intersection of these two ideas, right? Like a bunch of people owning mm-hmm. shares and then the vehicle, right? Or the mechanism of shareholder activism. And that's, that's where Troop was born. Can we build something mm-hmm. at the intersection of these two ideas? Right, man. Um, I kind of had a feeling that is where you guys were born out of. I remember the craze. There's a guy um, I, I work who I had no idea about this GameStop thing that was going on. And he kind of was explaining it to me. And he's been been in that Reddit group for years. And he's, I'm like, man, you sound like you're really into it. And he's like, dude, let me show you something. And he pulled up his arm and he has a tattoo. And it's, <laughs> you know, it's like the lo- GameStop logo. It's like, dude, that is, that's the next level of dedication. But um, I really really love what you guys are doing. And I love um, kind of the role you're trying to take in um, getting people to be more proactive. I feel like um, in our society, the middle class is really losing out. And this is a way that people can take more, you know, of a, uh, of, of a stock, right. Pun intended in, in their life um, and, and kind of help change the landscape a little bit. Um, honestly feel like there's a little bit too much and maybe a little bit more than a little too much government involvement in, in the stock market. Um, do you agree with that? Do you kind of feel like this, the, the, the super centralization of that and then the government is something that you guys are actively trying to um, work away from? So it's a, I think it's a good question. Um, and I think that the, the government's role as a regulator in the markets, mm-hmm. I think in theory comes from mostly a good place. It's this idea that, hey, the markets typically tend to attract all sorts of different people 
the typical motivation to go to the markets is to make money. What we mm-hmm. know about what happens when you're motivated by really the sole purpose of making money and you go to a place for it is that it can sometimes uh, be a place that invites uh, a little bit of dishonesty, a little bit of excess, right? Oh, yeah. And so in theory, the role of the regulator is to try and come in and make sure that the markets are about as fair as they can be. But the really hard right. part about that is, well, for whom are you writing the rules? Right. In theory, mm-hmm. the markets are supposed to be open for anyone, but it's also mm-hmm. a pretty tight-knit, closed-door club um, that safeguards the interests of the financial institutions in general. And mm-hmm. what we find is that there's a whole lot more uh, traveling between you know, certain parts of institutional finance and then the regulatory agencies than there is okay. between regular laymen regular retail people getting into investing and then eventually making it into the regulatory chambers. So what, what, mm. what, what that really means is that while personally, I think that it's important to have a government regulatory agency that oversees markets for the purpose of keeping mm-hmm. things fair. Um, it's, it's difficult, you know, to make sure that it is. everyone's interests are represented in the way that the rules are written. And it's mm-hmm. hard not to feel like the, there are kind of two sets of rules, right? Rules written for Definitely. Wall Street and then rules written for Main Street. Um, we don't necessarily right. think as a company that this comes from, you know, a place of malice necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it has turned into that. And so the company that we're building is really just trying to get people to realize, hey, no matter what you might think about whether or not you have you know rights, you, you do. And if you are interested in trying to find a way to exercise them and you're interested in finding other people who might also be interested, this is the place for you. Right. It's kind of hard not to think that it is unfair when you see people who have these avenues to insider trading. Um, You know, some of the most popular ones people focus on, Nancy Pelosi, Tommy Tuberville, all these, these people that you see, you know what their salaries are because it's public information and then you know how much they make. And there are literally there's pages and groups where people literally just track their their the way that they play the stock market and then they model the way they invest after them and they make money and they buy and sell when when they do. And if to me that's it's like circumstantial evidence, but it one hundred percent is in my mind evidence that they're getting information ahead of like you or I just sitting here kind of hoping, you know, something goes our way. Um, but when you talk about rights to people that they have rights, they want to get involved in the, the, the stock market and invest. What are some of those rights that, you know, people aren't really aware that they have other than having the ability to, to vote on decisions? Sure thing. Um, and, and as a, as a quick aside, totally agree mm-hmm. with um, the fact that it's really not that hard to, track what some of our lawmakers are invested in it's not mm-hmm. a stretch of the imagination to 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 feel like maybe these are people who shouldn't be able to you know during during, during their tenure in public office yeah. invest in the public yeah. markets to me that's not that's a crazy was, idea <laughs> no it's not and i was kind of going to ask you um but we're on the topic if what you think about that i Personally, I feel like that should not be allowed. They should not. They have too much information at their fingertips um, to where they're making more than just an educated guess. 
you know, I yeah. could go to somebody for investing advice that works in a financial firm and they give me advice. And that's an educated guess. I'd say those people have a lot more than educated guests. They kind of went to the teacher's desk and got the test ahead of the time, took a, took a look at it, and then took the test. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I feel 100%. like you probably agree that probably shouldn't be allowed to. Yeah, something needs to happen. But they vote on their own salaries, so it's it's kind of hard. How do you know? I don't know what the solution is to to kind of take that power back. You know? I mean, you know, maybe this is my my French background, but the the way that i would recommend uh building a solution to avoid that is perhaps mm-hmm. the simplest way which is just making it illegal to own stock in publicly traded companies during your public mm-hmm. tenure in office i mean you're supposed to be a public servant right if you're doing it and you're motivated right. by capital gains you're mm-hmm. probably not doing it for the right reasons i i, I would imagine of course, every Definitely. you know situation is different, but it just it just feels like it's a little contrary. If you're writing the rules, mm-hmm. how could you also be invested in the same companies that are standing to benefit from those rules? Exactly. The idea that you would self-report, you know, and play fair because you have a reporting duty. I mean, evidently that's not mm-hmm. working. So, <laughs> no, it's it's one of the more glaring um, evidences of a uh, a conflict of interest. And yeah, totally. I'm not sure, you know, if you're if you're aware, but when when um, we became a country, the United States became a country. If you were going to be a representative, at first you couldn't even live near the capital. You had to live in the, the the colony or the state eventually that you resided in and that you represented the people for. And so that sort of separation kind of keeps you honest. When it also could not be your primary job, it was essentially a duty. And we've definitely gotten a lot you know, further away from, and there's a lot more nuance in our country now with a lot more people and a lot of other things going on that you, you can't have that colonial construct of, of what it means to represent people anymore at all. Um, but that sort of um, idea, like we were talking about the conflict of interest, it, it's so obvious that this should be that way um, to keep people honest, to prevent these sorts of things from happening. And it also engenders a lot more trust in people when you know that you can trust them. And then you also, you are yielding that power over what somebody is, like you said, a public servant. They work for the, the common man in this country. It's not the other way around, though. I feel like we're losing sight of that a little bit in the United States and maybe some other more democratic countries in the world as well. I mean, I, I, you don't have to look too far, like in the U.S., to find data that confirms what you're saying. I mean, yeah, what is it? Not like eight or something, or eight or nine out of the ten uh, highest tax bracket zip codes in the U.S. are all in the hmm. D.C., Maryland, right. Virginia area. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. That's that, so that doesn't it seem is, right. Yeah. <laughs> No, it, you know, and we can argue oh, correlation and causation aren't always uh, linked, but I'm pretty sure that's a safe bet on that one. So just my <laughs> yeah, two cents think, on that. I think so, we know where that's coming from. But, you know. yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as we mentioned a, a couple of times, you're originally from France. Uh, what what was that like growing up in France? And then what are some of the differences between like just in general being um, growing up in France, living in France and the United States that you've noticed? Sure. I would say in, in, in France, we have a pretty deep culture of what's called civic education. Um, mm-hmm. It's this idea that we, uh, as a country, are roughly part of a, an ensemble, like a, a collective. And mm-hmm. that, for the most part, 
again, perhaps not as like a collective experience as uh, certain countries in, in Southeast Asia, but still to the scale of Europe, um, there's this like collective understanding that's quite strong. Um, and yeah. I would say the, the culture of questioning the systems of power uh, mm-hmm. is pretty deeply rooted. One of the most remarkable Definitely. things in France is that, you know, the current president of the country, who is now in his mm-hmm. second term, mm-hmm. he created a political party from scratch a year before a general election and then won. Mm-hmm. That would be like somebody creating an alternative to the Republican or Democratic Party and then winning the next right. year off of that platform. Right. I mean, it's right. it's really hard to imagine and conceive of in the U.S., but to me even though it can lead to pretty fraught political debates, it also means that the democracy is, for the most part, uh, very much alive and, for the most part, well, in the sense that it's functioning as intended, right? New ideas come to the forefront. Political parties live and die. New ideologies are presented. um, And all of those have the ability to exist, um, which is kind of cool. I would say, though, at the same time, there is a because there's such a widespread culture of poking holes in everything and questioning things and generally, generally rejecting most forms of organized mm-hmm. Um I would say as a result, there's a general, I think I wouldn't say aversion to entrepreneurship, because ultimately, like entrepreneurship, it's a I mean <laughs> the word entrepreneur is literally a French word. It means it to is. undertake. <laughs> um so I would say I think the biggest cultural difference is that in the U.S. there is an unbelievable amount of positivity and also imagining what could be and what might be. Now, we can argue Mm -hmm. all day about where the motivations for that come from. Sure, you could argue like, oh, it's because people just want to get rich. Fair. Okay, fine. But at the end of the day, it doesn't change the fact that there is an unbelievable spirit of competitiveness and wanting to like Mm -hmm. surpass yourself. And I think that um, I don't know that I necessarily think I would have started the company if it hadn't been for moving to the U.S., um, where where I feel constantly surrounded by people who just make me want to be the the most competitive and best version of myself at all times. It's sometimes exhausting, mm-hmm. yes, um, but yeah, it's very definitely. motivating. Do you think that um, it's one hundred percent that, or maybe not one hundred percent, but do you think it's it's kind of rooted in the difference between the individualism? versus the community aspect that you're talking about, like in France, because I would agree, I grew up, I lived pretty often or a lot of my life in Germany. And I agree, like the Germans, I feel still, they see themselves the same way. A lot of Europeans do, they see each other as more of a collective as opposed to Americans who see themselves more individuals. And um, do you feel like that, that sort of um, cultural difference of American individualism versus like the European collective culturalism is kind of why that, that exists, that, that drive to always change and be, be different. I think so. Yeah. I think it has, um, it has a really profound impact, but I would say mm-hmm. that um, the U S levels of individualism have fluctuated over time. Um, one of the most interesting things about the history of capitalistic structures in the U S is actually that, when um, Delaware law was written, you know, the law that mm-hmm. most corporations abide by, most corporations are right. incorporated in Delaware. Um, mm-hmm. And that that was chosen, you know, and the Chamber of Commerce put together a set of directives. Um, before the commonality of Delaware law, 
there were mm-hmm. a set of like business principles that you had to abide by and you had to apply for a business license um, at a centralized business office in DC. And mm-hmm. you were not able to receive your license to do business if you couldn't explain what the value to society was of your business. Meaning, if, for example, you wanted to apply for a business license with the intention of just being a ticket scalper, because you were mm-hmm. objectively not providing any value to society, you would not be able to get your license. So I would argue that there was a like moment that. in time in the U.S. where corporations had to be synonymous with like, yeah, of course, you're building a company to make money, obviously. But bigger mm-hmm. picture, you are evolving within a system of people and entities. What are you doing mm-hmm. to strengthen that society and those systems? Right. right. It's kind right. of like if Amazon today, um, well, they should be paying taxes, period. I don't think that's a controversial statement, but it's kind of like their nope. tax payment was specifically focused on the stretch of miles of road that their trucks run mm-hmm. on every year. Like if, if nothing else, they should at least be contributing to the maintenance of those highways and those roads, right? where they derive yeah. like the bulk of their delivery business. Right. Just can't drive just like seeing a blue Amazon truck. You really can't. And I think we, uh, to me, you're talking about like adding to society and being a company that's, that adds value. I, the change, I think you're talking about, you know, obviously the motivation is to make money. We want you to provide a service that makes lives better. But I think that as time has gone on, it's kind of this this de-evolution of capitalism, the corruption that kind of has taken over where it doesn't matter about the the community and the collective and the, the added value you're bringing. And it's more just about profits. And then there's all these sorts of inroads where other people can make money off off of that. Um, and if you if you kind of look at a lot of older civilizations that have, have come and gone on, on the face of our earth, um, they all have these these things that happen that kind of first get rid of the middle class, which is the majority of people, the working class, you know, um, and, and a sign of a healthy society. And I think that you made a really good point about is the fact that, um, you know, in France, Macron came up, came out his own party, like you're talking about in one, and there's been some efforts. And I want to say Andrew Yang has tried to do that as well. Um, creating his own political party. Um, Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, but, but, it's not successful here in the United States. And unfortunately we are a two party system, despite all of the warnings out there that say we should not be that, that system. Um, but the eradication of the middle class is, is a predictor, a milestone over and over and over and over again throughout time for um, predicting the fall of civilization or a, a civilization, or at least the, the, the upcoming massive upheaval and change. Right. So like the Romans, they went through all this, these trials and tribulations with the Punic Wars. The, their soldiers came back and they were the middle class. And the soldiers, they brought back with them a lot of slaves. And, and, and Rome, having such a slave class and getting rid of all those jobs, the artisan jobs, um, they, they started um, you know, having privatized military um, or excuse me, a central military getting away from the privatized military kind of eroded all the jobs that the middle class could do and then in turn prevented that sort of ability to be able to shift out of middle-class into an upper-class society became a lot more difficult for people to do that. And I think that we're seeing that here now 
Um, and uh, I know when we were on the phone the other day, we uh, we mentioned uh, neo-feudalism. We were talking about it. And uh, that's kind of, I'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman that, that uh, I'm referencing. I read um, his book called Neo-Feudalism. Um, he discusses essentially, um, these are, we're, we are the serfs. We're the ones working for the Lord. And this is digital features. Joel Kotkin. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but I, I feel like when we, I mentioned it, that I could get the impression that you agreed that this is the, the, the erosion of the middle class is becoming very hard. Even I was just having this conversation with a really good friend of mine the other day, making six figures is not enough anymore. But when I was in high school, it was something to aspire to. But the people who are making rules are still based them, basing their, their reality on that expired reality. And it's sad to say that exactly. it's an expired exactly. reality, but it's the way it is. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. And and we could have a conversation all day about, you know, work ethic or whatever. And I think that um, you're, you're a lot, you're evidence that the millennial is not very, is not lazy and is very willing to be proactive, you know? Um, but because a lot of people would say that our generation is lazy and that the reason why we, you know, we don't make enough money or we can't afford to live is, is because of our, um, you know, too much avocado toast. Yeah. Too much. Exactly. Yeah. You know, my, my <laughs> lattes and stuff. And, uh, but re- in reality, you know, I have good friends who has a, has a successful business. His wife works in the medical industry and they still can't afford to buy a home. And I know for a fact in the 60s and 70s and 80s, if you had a successful business and your spouse worked in the medical medical field, you could probably buy two homes and be OK. You know, and it's just it's it's and wild go on how vacation much- and, a, yes. you know, not be worried about like a single healthcare scare wiping out your savings. I mean, talk about it's crazy total erosion of a safety net yeah and and that's kind of what what this is that idea of of, uh neo-feudalism is is the dependence on the person who gives you everything and can come in and take it at any point in time it's essentially what's what's happening is um we're getting to the point where we have to rent most people can't buy you know you can't the I, I tell you what I still have them all. I probably have 400 DVDs from when I was in college, and you know when I was a young airman. Every you, you don't really go buy DVDs anymore. The, we're becoming a, a renting culture, whether it's you know renting or buying something that's a digital product, and you know it kind of feels like it's all conditioning us towards this concept of of ownership is is going to be non-existent eventually. Which is why, until the rules change, and hopefully they don't, but. Mm-hmm. Which is why the stock market is one of the last refuges of, uh, I guess, supposed real ownership of something, right? Because in, in theory, true. you own a share of a company, you are a part owner of that company. But right. you know, to your point um, about about neo feudalism and about the erosion of of the middle class, to me, the way that this stands out the most uh, loudly is in another terminology which which okay. i'm not sure if it's necessarily controversial but i feel like perhaps it can rub people some you know some people the wrong way but um I, I like to think of it as income inequality um, okay and yeah. there are two ways to understand i think or many ways but the two principal ways to understand the erosion of the middle class the first mm-hmm. is through a series of policies and uh rules uh, weakening of regulatory bodies and agencies, 
et cetera, mm-hmm. that leads to a bunch of excesses and that just leads to, you know, the, the cost of life increasing, et cetera. And I mm-hmm. think that it's totally reasonable to accept that that narrative. Another chart to look at, though, is simply what the average CEO or C-suite person, right? Then what the average executive pay is versus Mm -hmm. the average or even the median salary of the company that they run, like the average employee in that company, how much they make. And we've seen that multiple explode over the past 25, 30 years. I mean, ever since Mm -hmm. uh, 1984, um, it has really not stopped rising. And I think one of the issues with that is, you know, you, you mentioned it yourself. I think that the return from the Punic Wars um, led to a lot of unrest, even more, I suppose, recently and even more closely. Like we don't think oh, of yeah. ancient Inca or Maya civilizations as particularly recent or close, but in the grand scheme of things, in terms of like human history, it was pretty recent and pretty close You're by. Right. We have an abundance of evidence, most recently published by the University of New Mexico, suggesting mm-hmm. that the number one thing that led to the fall of bias uh, was mm-hmm. totally unbridled income inequality. A huge gap between really? a minority of people who concentrated 80, 90% of all of the wealth of that society, and then everyone mm-hmm. else was sharing 10%. And we look at those numbers and we think, oh, that's crazy. I mean, that will never happen here. We're headed on a crash course right there. And we know what the consequences are. That's true. It kind of explains um, when the Spanish wrote about just being greeted and then handed piles of gold by by the leaders. You know, it's who who was massing that gold. I I guarantee it wasn't being kept in everybody's huts. You know, it was wherever the temples were and, you know, the, the high priests and the, and the, the emperor, whatever, you know, so that's, that's a really interesting point. I'll have to, to look that up. Um, and, and uh, by the way, I, uh, I think, uh, you mentioned Andrew Yang, really interesting guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't really caught up on his most recent politics, but, and I think his, I think yeah. his, uh, party was called like something like, uh, moving forward or forward movement or something that the, the word forward is in there. Sorry, I remember correctly. But the, the thing that stood out to me the most about Yang is I didn't realize that he was, he started as one of the founders of a movement called venture for America. Um, mm. And it was a program that I was dying to get into when I was in college. Basically they take people coming out of schools in the U S who are really mm-hmm. interested in entrepreneurship and just, just highly motivated people in general um, yeah. And then drop ship them in second, third, or like fourth tier cities in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. to either build businesses or join a, just you know a startup in in those in those uh, cities to try and address various uh, perhaps like shortcomings of that city. So, for example, um, I had a buddy who was working building idea. out cell towers across Louisiana, based out of New Orleans, mm-hmm. right, to kind of you know coordinate emergency responses. Another friend who ended up working, uh, building out the public transportation system in Las Vegas, because it turns out that the mm-hmm. population that works in the hospitality, food and beverage industry there, um, mm-hmm. you know, overwhelmingly have to rely on terrible buses and like cars mm-hmm. that they don't often necessarily are able to afford. So there was no like public transportation system for, for the entire population. People that like 
serving the city and making it run. Um, so an right. interesting kind of public private partnership problem solve. Uh, and so off the back of his experience running venture for America, the program, I think he got pretty motivated, um, and was one of the first proponents of universal basic income in the U S which mm. is an interesting concept. Um, I think Definitely. it merits attention. Uh, I don't mm. have all the answers though. I really don't know whether it's a good idea or not for the U S but I think it's a really fascinating sure. concept. Yeah. I, I had um, arrived, or I still have a really, really good friend that I worked with when I was in Germany and he's, he's a German citizen. And um, we've, we've had this conversation before. And one of the things that I always found really interesting is you sit down and I worked with a lot of other German nationals and we're all having these conversations about the differences between German economy and in American economy, like on what you can expect. And one of the interesting things I learned is that if you need to take medical leave in Germany, you can, and you can take it for up to a year. And, and I feel like it's a year that, and you get still, you still get paid your full wage. And if you need to take more leave after that, then you gradually lose, I think it's like 25% of what you were getting paid until, um, you know, you, I think you hit like 50% and then you really have to make a decision on whether you're coming back to work or not. And, but there's such a long time and, and you know, we could also talk about maternity leave or like fa family leave as well. Like that, that definitely is lacking hardcore here in the United States. Um, but it's like a separate conversation, but not, but um, it's so interesting. You talk about that, you know, that income, he had some pretty strong opinions on, on people getting paid while they weren't working and he was not in favor of it, you know, and he knows, and we had a lot, we had to let them abide by the rules of, of Germany while we were there. Um, and as you know, I'm in the, in the air force I was there with the air force. So they're working for the U S government. And, um, we had to let them abide by those rules, but he knew people were abusing it and that people do abuse it um, while they're there. So there is that risk like you talked about that conversation should be had. And I agree. I don't, I think there should be a conversation on it. I'm not just black or white. It's, it's a no for me. You know what I mean? I think that there's nothing. Um, there's obviously things that have to work out and we're not going to solve those problems in this conversation, but it warrants the conversation. It's not a terrible idea in my opinion. Um, but, uh, you know, the, there's some things that the United States, I feel like, could kind of catch up on that other countries have taken a better stance on, for sure, like France yeah. and Germany. You know, to, to, to kind of piggyback off of the, 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 the Germany example, one of the coolest things I think about the German um, set of rules, in particular as it governs their, their stock market, but really for any large corporation in Germany you have a board of six, mm -hmm. eight, 10, 12 people. You yeah. must on your board have one person from like your regular set of employees. Could you imagine the monumentous wow. shift that that would lead to in the U S if, you know, yeah. for example, like the board of AT&T was just going to pick somebody from their 20,000 person yeah. employee base. Right. I'm talking somebody who works like in an AT&T shop in New York city. Yeah. Um, so Off the street, St. Louis. Yeah. Straight just, up. Yeah. Just, all right. This is now you're, <laughs> now you're on the board of this company. Right. Could you imagine the level of advocacy that that person would bring to the table, you know, on behalf yeah. of the employee base? Um, yeah. And time and time and time and time again, when you understand what motivates your employee base and you cater to that mm -hmm. properly, you end up with 
like multiples oh, yeah. higher productivity rates. It's not rocket Absolutely. science. No, <laughs> it isn't. It's so funny you bring that up because, um, you know, the military can be pretty archaic with a lot of the things it does. And there's some good reasons why we're so strict, obviously, with, with certain things. And there's some lessons to be learned there. But one of the things that, um, at least in my experience with the Air Force, that we've started doing more is giving a voice to the lower end of the pay grades. So like E1, 2, 3, and 4 are, for the Air Force, we consider the airmen pay grades, right? You're not, you're not supervision or management at all, really. And um, they've started bringing more of the the um, younger airmen crowd into the conversations with like the strategic level leadership um, and asking questions and letting them give opinions. And it's kind of weird. I've been in these rooms when this has happened because there's a good chunk of people who are really interested and listen to what is being said because they haven't forgotten that they were once an airman or, you know, an 18 to 22 year old, which is the, the you know majority of these people. And then there's, there's the other ones who just really are uncomfortable with the conversation, don't want to have anything to do with it. And kind of what you're talking about, that made me think of that because I have noticed that the, I could be in the same at the same base in the same squadron for years and the, the leadership chains change, right. As people you know, move out and the ones that seem to be the most successful and the leadership like kind of regimes, I guess you could say that had the highest morale are the ones that involve everybody throughout all of the pay grades, all of the rank structure and ask these questions and give voice and let them bring up concerns. And obviously you're going to get ones that, you know, it's like, Oh, I ran out of toilet paper. Well, okay. That's, you know, we, <laughs> you can handle that on your own kind of thing, you know, but you are going to hear a lot and you're going to hear a lot more and they have more of a pulse on the sort of like operational level of things that are going on and can probably bring up a lot of things that you haven't even realized are coming up on the horizon because you're not at that level. So I just think that incorporating that idea, you know, the military is trying to, from what I've seen. Incorporating the idea in corporate America, to me, you're only going to reap benefit from it. I don't see necessarily a lot of downside. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you know, originally where companies came from, like where where mm-hmm. the stock market came from, not the original, original place, because that was <laughs> a tavern in London at another point in time. But um, in the U.S. at least, in the beginning – it, the people who own shares of companies were few and far apart and mm-hmm. they owned typically a pretty significant amount of the company that they're invested in. Mm-hmm. When these companies would have their annual shareholder meetings for the longest time, these things used to, I mean, it really wasn't up until COVID that the majority mm-hmm. of companies decided to just start holding these things online. Mm-hmm. But really up until mm-hmm. COVID, even the world's largest corporations would still have one day a year where it was open doors. And if you're a shareholder hmm. and you're a verified shareholder as of, I don't know, typically like 30 or 60 days before the annual shareholder meetings, there's a cutoff date. If you meet mm-hmm. that requirement, yeah, you yeah. could show up there. I, I remember meeting, uh, Interesting. meeting some, uh, it's actually a German guy whose name is also Felix actually, um, oh. at a, at another nice. startup event, I think a year ago. And he had a funny story. He told me, when he was a mm-hmm. student in Frankfurt in Germany, which is where all the mm-hmm. banks are headquartered. It's also where the, the stock market is headquartered in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, he bought one share of each bank 
in Germany. Um, okay. And then when the annual shareholder, meeting, shareholder meetings would roll around, they were these very lavish events with really big spreads of beer and sausages. <laughs> and he would just go from about right. one AGM to the next and just fill up on <laughs> sausages and oh, beer. Oh, man. <laughs> that was pretty awesome. Not going to lie. Uh, it's a pretty, uh, it, t- it tells you a lot about like where these things come from, why it's kind of funny that some of these traditions are still mm-hmm. alive. Like that my, yeah. my, my, uh, my, my dad, um, who like has had a couple shares of a random gas company in France for forever. Uh, he's mm-hmm. never really cared about this stuff, but because I'm building a company in this space, I've been kind of obsessively talking to him about it. And he actually mm-hmm. went, um, to the annual shareholder meeting because he got the letter and he's never even opened it in the past. And he went this year mm-hmm. uh, and he was just very excited, took a bunch of pictures, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he's in his mid-60s. He was the youngest person there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is how companies do it. You show up, they give you a little voucher, a meal voucher, and yeah. then they give you the voting packet with all of the pro management uh, suggestions kind uh, of neatly circled and they give course. you your ticket on top of that. And they say, all right, sit tight, listen to this for the next two hours. And then you can go redeem your ticket for a meal at the, <laughs> at the cafeteria. After. Oh my gosh. Right. How, how do you think these people are voting? <laughs> exactly. With how management yes, every time. Right. Every time. Yeah. Man, it's, you have to, there has to be an effort to take some of that back and, and the pieces education, you know, um, you talked before about, um, you know, France's civic education. There's not a lot of that anymore in the United States. And, um, I, I had, I had, my education was mostly, um, department of defense dependence schools is what they're called. Um, mm. so they're all on base. Right. And, um, it's not like military school in the sense that we had like uniforms and stuff like that. It's regular, like American education. But anyway, the first time I ever had a civics class was after I moved back to the United States and was going to college in St. Louis. And, you know, I knew enough about, I guess, or a little bit about the government from like my dad who was, was active duty air force as well, but it was pretty wild. Um, the little that I knew sitting in class with other students and, this, you know, the professor talking about, you know, our government, what, what the different branches are and all that stuff. They had no idea, like we even had different branches of government and what they did, you know, and it was, it's pretty shocking. And, um, actually last night we were talking to, um, he's a former U S army ranger, former border patrol agent. Uh, and he wrote a book, uh, called borderline and it's about the Southern border and kind of, um, humanizing and empathizing with the people that are coming across the border that need help and need asylum and also kind of reconciling um, it as a country to you know stay safe, but also help people and be true to American values because we're a nation of immigrants. So last night talking to Vince Vargas, wrote a book, Borderline. And one of the things we we're talking about is how to become a, a citizen in the United States, you have to take a test. And mm. I sort of made the point essentially that to, I feel like to graduate high school in the United States, you should have to take the same test that these people that want to come in and immigrate in the United States have to take to prove essentially they want to be a, a naturalized citizen in the United States. And because it has to do with our government, it has to do with appreciation of the United States. It has to do with understanding the history. And you go, 
and I know I do in the, the Air Force um, in the military in general, there are a lot of people who have earned their citizenship through military service. And I will tell you without any shame that the majority of the people that I have met that are the most patriotic are ones that grew up somewhere else and have come to the United States um, and, and they know a hell of a lot more than the average 18 to 22 year old in, in the United States about our history, about our government, about the way this all functions, all that stuff. And so I do. I feel like um, it's a piece of our puzzle, so to speak, in the United States that we're missing um, very poorly is is civics. And I do. I feel like you should have to take the same test and prove yeah. you understand. And I'll, I'll say this, too, and this may be sort of controversial, but there's a lot of studies that have gone on about the more egalitarian societies get, the more um, – rights that everybody have um, to vote that you're going to see sort of people not paying attention to the things that matter in the country with a less invested interest in keeping um, the ideals afloat of that country um, because it should be now, and I don't advocate for like landed gentry and, you know, you have to be, you know, certain race and color and don't think anything like that. But I do think that you should have to um, have a vested interest in our country to be able to make decisions for everybody else or help make decisions for everybody else. And I think a good way to quantify that is that test, right? Because at least you could say you have been thoroughly educated on what this means. And then from there, I respect you as a human being and the decisions you want to make and you want to vote for. And that's that's the beauty of the United States, you know, to me, is is allowing those ideas and concepts to flourish. That's where we've got to where we are today. You know, and I know in France, you know, this the idea of the enlightenment that, you know, that our American founding fathers got a lot of from are, are from from French philosophers as well. So you guys appreciate those same ideas and concepts um, equally. hundred oh, percent. Um, we have in in. In France, in order to be able to get your driver's license, uh, mm -hmm. in order, I believe, to be able to pass the French baccalaureate, in order to mm -hmm. do a whole bunch of stuff, you need to um, you need to have done this one day uh, called like the defense calling day. So on okay. top of year-round civics education, you also need to get called mm -hmm. and uh, respond to the call and show up in person um, at the nearest military barracks and closest mm. to whatever town you live in. And it's one-day thing. It's mandatory. Um, and they basically tell you what are the main branches of different – what are the different military branches in France. Um, mm -hmm roughly what is the purpose of having an armed military force um, roughly like where does it come from how are they organized what do they mostly do they introduce you to the possibility of careers in the military etc um, and mm. then they kind of take a step back and talk a little bit about like what is the purpose of sovereignty in general like the idea right. that we even have borders where does it come from and we were rarely asked this question um, and it's an yeah. opportunity to revisit the values upon which the country has been founded. And I think that mm -hmm. in the U S um, it, it, it has been a very long time, I think since there's been a big kind of like national conversation about what are the values upon which this country is built? Do we Definitely. want to modernize a few of these things? Do we want to revisit mm -hmm. them? What do those things mean today? And it's really yeah. strange to me that, uh, 
for example, with the Supreme Court, you have people mm -hmm. who have credibility making legal arguments off the back of uh, originalism, like a, a, mm -hmm. as, as if some sort of hyper narrow reading of the original constitution was what the founding fathers had intended. Like, obviously not. These are incredibly intellectual people who right. were working with the most amount of nuance and complexity that they could imagine and conceive mm -hmm. of for their time. But they knew yeah. that as society evolves, new ideas are going to come up. So Definitely. I feel like, you know, you get called out for, for you or labeled as, as a pseudo progressive or liberal or whatever. When you, when you propose ideas that some people say, oh, well, that's, that's not American or, or that's not patriotic. It's so bizarre mm -hmm. to me. You can both love something and to be very clear, like love this country. I've had an amazing time here. I'm a U.S. citizen. Um, mm -hmm. You can both love something and want to to make it the best version of it. And there's so much. Absolutely. There's so much promise. Like there's so much to work with, right? Right. Um, yeah. I, this is um, really glad. Like the way that this conversation with you has evolved because it's it's really start to paint a picture for me of the ideals that it seems like you've carried into you know your goals with truth. And um, you know it it's it seems more than just you know the I guess the idea that we were talking about earlier about just to have a business to make money and be successful, this is, seems more like a um, cultural, moral, ethical thing for you in a lot of different levels. I mean, would I, would that be accurate to say? I, I think it would be really hard for me to, and and frankly, most of our team um, mm -hmm. to 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 want to do this, to build this thing, and to continue doing it if it wasn't for the fact that it's a pretty deep alignment of our each, each of us in the company's like individual um, visions for the future with the way mm -hmm. that we're building our career. The fact that we're able to kind mm -hmm. of parallel track those two things is an incredible privilege and it's super motivating. And it's the number one reason why um, I think most of us just keep getting up and doing it. So yeah, I, I, I would agree that yeah. it's uh it's a moral ethical calling and frankly it's motivated by a, uh, a desire to make the systems that and the communities and the groups that we live in maybe 1% better. And we can disagree yeah. about what better looks and feels like, but we mm -hmm. need to be able to at least have that conversation. Yeah. Are you guys the only ones in this space that are doing what you're doing? So the short answer is no. Uh, and I'm okay. happy about that because I think <laughs> right. not, not, not to invite more France versus the U S but one of the cool things about yeah. the U S is that there's a really deep culture of competitiveness and competition, mm -hmm. I think is important in the space, perhaps not necessarily for all oh, who's going to make more money, but rather there are going to be so many different ways to approach trying to solve this problem. Um, mm -hmm. the problem with like collective action in the markets, uh, and so it's, a, I'm grateful that a bunch of other companies are moving in this space, but I would say, uh, there are kind of three ways to look at this space. The first is you need to go buy shares so that you can participate in XYZ initiative. And that's totally mm -hmm. fair. Another initiative is, will you probably already own shares, uh, mm -hmm. because you may have a 401k or a pension fund or. Maybe right. you bought a couple shares of like a mutual fund or an ETF at some point, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
you should be able to do something with those. Um, and I suppose the third lane is uh, totally outside of the of, of the markets. And that's mm-hmm. if you're really, really focused on trying to affect or impact or change public policy, uh, you can write public policy. You can vote for a politician. Mm-hmm. You can strike. You can boycott. You can divest. Um, you yeah. name it, right? You can organize. But the two lanes that I'm talking about really are kind of focused on the stock market. One requires active, active, everyday participation. That's where we got started, but we're moving away from that. And what we're moving mm-hmm. more closely to is, um, hey, you already have assets. You may not necessarily know about that. How can we help you realize that? And how can we work with you on helping you leverage those things mm-hmm. with other people? So, yeah. What does that help look like? So it's a good question. So, so remember in the in the earlier part of our conversation, I mentioned that um, what what you refer to as the as the erosion of the middle class. Um, I right. think of in a I, I similarly think about that concept, but I have a different labeling for it. I just really I call it income inequality. Um, right. And in the corporate world space. If you think about the fact that regular people are invited to vote, um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, once a year on mm-hmm. three mandatory items. One, who's on the board. Two, who's the auditor, the financial auditor of this company. Um, and then three, mm-hmm. critically, are we going to approve the pay package? Mm-hmm. I would argue that if systematically people rejected executive pay packages, mm-hmm on the grounds that they are most likely to contribute to social and societal unrest, right? Because what happens, mm-hmm. you have unbridled income inequality and it goes on for long right. enough. And then the foundations of society start to get shaky and then things kind mm-hmm. of break down into mayhem, right? Mm-hmm. We, like we don't need to get all the way there to start talking about systems change. And Definitely the not. method to push systems change is to systematically make sure that your 401k investments, your anything else that you might be invested in in any way, shape, or form in the stock market, that Mm -hmm. your shares, even if you are not the one exercising your right to vote, you've given it to your fund manager, that that person, that team, that company um, are basically representing your vision for the future in the way that your assets are being voted. And we started in this space trying to get people to connect their individual brokerage accounts to our app. We're moving away from that because we're taking this technology now and we're taking it directly to the world's biggest asset managers. So BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, Fidelity, Franklin Templeton, you name it. And we're trying to convince them, hey, what if you used our platform just for the voting part? Everything else, you do exactly what you'd like to do. It's your business. We're not, we have no thoughts about it. But on the mm-hmm. voting piece, our, our, our hypothesis, our theory in this space is that the overwhelming majority of Americans may mm-hmm. disagree on a bunch of complex social issues. But there's sure. actually a ton of agreement on just the income inequality piece. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Whether you're conservative, whether you're progressive, whether you're libertarian, whether and, and anything in between. At the end of the day, 
the overall majority of people in the U.S. agree that when the C-suite is paid 40 to 400 times the amount the average working in the company, that that that's actually a benefit for no one. <laughs> like everyone no. suffers from that. So mm-hmm. if at scale the world's largest asset managers were able to say, "Hey, we're using a tool that is." just taking our end client's vision for the future and having that flow all the way through to how their assets are being voted. Mm -hmm. My guess is that we would start to see systematic rejection of CEO pay packages. We would probably also see a decent amount of increased support for perhaps slightly more environmentally focused measures. Again, not so much as a, not so much from like a, an ideological or environmental stance, but really if right. you're invested in the markets for the long term and the bulk of the U.S. bedrock of investment is based off of mostly uh, like, you know, petrol and energy based uh, production, that's the bedrock mm-hmm. of like U.S. finance, right? Yeah. Wouldn't you want those companies to start proposing a plan to move to renewables? Again, not because... For sure. Uh, you know, for environmental conservation, but simply because from an economic standpoint, if, for example, most U.S. automakers stop making gas combustion engines, which is, by the way, mm-hmm. the case, <laughs> it's happening. Yeah, they are. Definitely. If you're an investor in Exxon or ConocoPhillips or whatever, you kind of want to see that those companies have some sort of a plan. Otherwise, mm-hmm. why would you be a pension investor in them? You might as well just pull your money right. out now and put it all on Apple and Microsoft, Right. True. So, I don't know. It just there are these common sense measures, at least in, in my view. Um, but common mm-hmm. sense again is a controversial topic, right? Because it's not True. the same sense for everyone. But it's yeah, not roughly like it shouldn't necessarily require everyone to show up at every fight every time. There's got to be a smarter mm-hmm. way to do this. We have enough yeah. information about what you and I, uh, you know, average people roughly prefer there's a ton of information mm-hmm. about us on social media there's a ton of information about us even in these banking files etc can we not just take that information build mm-hmm. voting policies that systematically take into account your preferences your vision for the future and make sure that whatever assets you own when it comes time to a vote that your mm-hmm. vision for the future is the one that's being applied there that's it that is a wonderful concept you know i uh to go back to what you were talking about, um, you brought up some of the, uh, the kind of the villains, uh, I'd say, in this space. A lot of people like to throw around, I guess, as villains, BlackRock and Vanguard. Um, you, have you experienced any sort of like pushback or like, I guess, maybe animosity is not the right word, but like aggress- aggressive pushback on anything you guys are trying to do from any from anywhere? So it's a really good question. Um, I would say... Although those big companies are typically, you know, people point Mm -hmm. their fingers at them and rightfully so it's because I think combined the BlackRock state street and Vanguard, if I remember correctly, own roughly 20% of, of, of the world's publicly traded equities, which is insane. Mm -hmm. Um, Why do they own that? They own that because, when you and I have a 401k with a company or when you or I mm-hmm. have a pension fund being managed by another entity, 
the mm-hmm. 401k manager, the pension fund manager, they're not going out to the open market and buying a bunch of individual stocks. They're not really doing it. They're mm-hmm. going to BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard and saying, hey, guys, can you build me a portfolio that gives me investment into the entire market? That way, right. I don't have to like pick and choose one by one. I can just be exposed to the whole market. And if the market, whole market goes up, everyone's happy. And because mm-hmm. in the history of the U.S., the market mostly just goes up, that's a pretty safe investment strategy. Yeah. Problem is, when you own the entire market, um, well, you have to vote on the entire market. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a governance problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. If you own a bunch of Pepsi and a bunch of Coca-Cola, you're not going to start making decisions that help Pepsi suddenly perform better than Coca-Cola. You're going to make voting right. decisions that kind of, you know, make both of those companies get better over time. Mm-hmm. That is actually way more complex than people really understand. Um, and so BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, they have what's called a fiduciary obligation to vote in a way that is most beneficial to their clients or shareholders of those companies. The problem mm-hmm. is when you have 135 million customers, you, that's 135 million different ways of interpreting what's best for you versus me. And so All these right. companies have ended up in a situation where they're damned if they do, damned if they don't, right? They either mm-hmm. they have to make a voting decision because they legally have to, but mm-hmm. they're going to get it wrong for a bunch of people. And then when they decide, you know what, we're not going to vote, they get in trouble because everyone's like, well, you have to vote. You're, you have so much soft power, right? You should be doing it. Right. So what happens, these companies and everyone else like them in this space have over the past 25, 30 years turned to two Mm -hmm. companies, just two companies on Wall Street, ISS, which is called Institutional Shareholder Services, and Glass-Lewis. And these two companies provide what's called proxy advisory. So if you think Mm -hmm. about it, everyone who manages assets has a an obligation to vote stuff, but they don't, they, they don't want to vote this stuff. It, it gets political. It gets polarizing. It's a sticky topic. So what do they do? They just buy a standardized set of voting recommendations from one of these two players in the space. Mm-hmm. In our view, uh, there should be way more providers of voting recommendations and mm-hmm. there should be at least one player in the space that provides voting recommendations that roughly, roughly echo the wills and sentiments of most people, like the average person in the U.S. And neither of those sense. two services are built or designed with the average person in mind. They're designed mm-hmm. with a very specific set of financial indicators. So to me, that's too narrow of a definition of fiduciary responsibility. So true mm-hmm. is actually entering that space. Where we aspire to compete with ISS and Glass Lewis on proxy advisory. Got you. Okay, so your the pushback you get is from the the guys already in the field, essentially doing this, who don't want you to come in and and shift and and shake things up. I guess basically is what you're saying. Yes, and there is uh, in the in the industry parlance a 600 pound gorilla in the room that nobody. Nobody talks about. And that is Is, a uh, company that owns all of the back end voting infrastructure. 
Well, you're you're educating me here. What what is that six hundred pound gorilla? That company is called Broadridge. Okay. They are a publicly traded company. None of this is secretive. You can find all this stuff in their filings. Um, they basically, over the course of many, 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 many years, um, and again, like this, this started with the right intentions, right? Mm-hmm. They realized, hey, we need to build systems that help shareholders who live in all 50 states across the U.S. now receive communication from the companies that they've invested in. When it was mm-hmm. an old boys club and it was 50 or a hundred people, mostly in New York city, that was manageable. When it's dozens of millions of people across the entire U S it's a little mm-hmm. bit more difficult to make sure that everyone's receiving the packets at the right time, with the right information. So Absolutely. one company kind of sprung up and decided to just like eat up that space. And that company is called mm-hmm. It has grown okay. into a six and a half billion dollar revenue a year company um, mm. that roughly makes its uh, money through snail mail and email, um, okay. which is kind of wild in this day and age. And sure. the real reason why the biggest asset management companies systematically turn to those two vote recommendation providers mm-hmm. partially yes it's because their recommendation meets the requirements that they that they need to abide by right it's their fiduciary duty blah blah uh, mm-hmm. the, the other reason why um the world's largest asset managers systematically purchase these two guys's recommendation is because those guys are directly integrated with broadridge and so mm-hmm. the vote portion of the asset manager's job, which is always operationally complex, full of like clerical errors. It's a very manual process involving a ton of different Mm -hmm. human beings across multiple different organizations. Um, They don't want to like our struggle, our uphill battle is going to be steep because we're going to need to try and convince either Broadridge to play ball with us. Good luck. Mm -hmm. Or we need to go to all the custodians basically are sitting on the ledger of all these asset management firms and convince them, Hey, you trust us. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're worth a shot. We're a small tech firm based out of Brooklyn. And we're, we're trying, mm-hmm. trying to compete and like lower, lower your costs and your expenses in this space and make it more efficient, but it's going to mm-hmm. be hard, but it doesn't make it any less worthwhile for us. Definitely, man. This sounds, it sounds extremely complicated. You're, you have to walk a lot of really, really fine lines because in, and again, like I said, you, you're teaching me a lot with what you're saying. Um, I'm by no means, you know, as educated in this as you, as you are, but I feel like there's gotta be so much legal parlance that goes on in the way you have conversations, the decisions that you make, probably even in trying to interact with some of these people. Um, and I you know, nothing in the legal world moves with any sort of speed, you know, so I feel like it's probably a very long process as well. One that probably also requires a lot of uh, uh, money to to make that happen. You said you're competing with a, a company that we used to have like six and a half billion dollars annually, right, revenue or whatever. Um, that, you know, that's incredible. You know, so I... I kind of got the impression and please disabuse me of that impression when, um, when I say this, but that 
there's maybe not necessarily like a nefarious aspect of this um, where they you're they see you as like a, a competitor or maybe somebody um, who I don't know for lack of a better term is a bug to be squashed or anything like that hopefully that's not the way you guys are seen or and if it is I'm very interested to hear about that but how do you guys navigate this it seems just like you're you got to be a ship around a bunch of rocks you know what I mean how do you guys yeah. do that like that sounds I think so I guess the there are a few ways to answer that I guess I'll start by saying Hopefully, uh, we're not seen, frankly, at all in the beginning. Like it would be nice to fly under the radar for a bit, but that's also a right. difficult uh, thing to do when you're also trying to get people to trust that the system that you've built works. So you need to like balance that <laughs> out. You know, we're trying to Big do as economy. many speaking engagements as we can, and trying to put out a little bit of mm-hmm. marketing to get it get it out there. But it's <laughs> it's tough. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, hopefully the way that this works out is that these incumbent players in the space welcome additional perspectives on how to do business in this space, that they welcome new ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it puts them in a position where they can gracefully enter the conversation and basically propose mm. alternatives to what we're doing. I think that if we push very publicly and these organizations, they can refuse to acknowledge us forever. They don't owe us anything. Um, that's totally reasonable. But if we end up encountering any kind of success at all in this space, and it's starting to very slowly show a couple interesting positive signs. I think it puts them in a position where they have to formulate an opinion. And in my view, having been an enterprise sales for most of my career, you know, there are two mm-hmm. ways to go about it when it comes to acknowledging the competition. Perhaps the most productive way is to acknowledge what is interesting and original about the other person's ideas. Now mm-hmm. it's a very kind of graceful conversation where you have people that are exchanging on the merits of ideas as opposed to, mm-hmm. oh, well, whatever. Or, you know, it becomes a reasonable conversation mm-hmm. or you don't acknowledge it at all. But I feel like the losing tactic is when you start pointing out the flaws in your competition, mm-hmm. you you end up really just kind of undermining yourself, right? Everyone is offering right. a different perspective in the space. Um, mm-hmm. We're just trying to do what these other players are doing with way more technology, but also far fewer people and fewer means. So hopefully those things kind of match up at some point. I sort of feel like this has to be for you guys, a a conversation where if you're familiar with the concept of making somebody think an idea is theirs, even though it it really isn't. And that you guys sort of exist in that space and are helping, I guess, or make yourselves appear to help, usher them into a space where that is more fair for other people and and perhaps garner that trust from them in that way where like i said it seems like it's their idea but really you have been that that conduit doing the groundwork laying laying the foundation the whole time that my understanding that properly yeah that's that's super accurate and you know last year the guy who started blackrock 
because we tend to forget this, mm-hmm. but like it kind of, the company kind of came out of nowhere um, and then turned into a trillion dollar yeah. asset manager. Obviously not overnight. It's wild. It required a lot of like, you know, smart planning, but this is not a company that was, has been around for 200 years. Like it's been around for I don't mm-hmm. know, 25, 30, um, mm-hmm. maybe 40 years. Anyways, uh, the guy who runs it used to make ESG a big part of his brand, right? Environmental, social, and governance yep. kind of data. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And he got blasted for that so hard by a bunch of Southern state attorney generals in the past year right? that he very publicly came out and said, you know what? I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually not pro ESG, but I'm also not anti ESG. I just don't have an opinion anymore. (laughs) It was one of the most symbolic and public kind of about faces that I've seen in a while, uh, which Mm -hmm. to me just like, you can focus on, wow, things have gotten so polarized. But the biggest takeaway for me was more, okay, this just means that we need a system that is better at incorporating the even wider set of opinions, perspectives, whatever you want to call it, right? Visions Mm -hmm. for the future. We need a system that does a better job at incorporating that into a way that like our financial products are built and the way that our assets are managed and eventually voted. That's it. So while every other asset manager in the world is putting out billboards talking about hyper personalized and customized white glove financial services, blah, blah, blah. Really mm-hmm. what they're talking about is an emphasis on personalization quality. And yet okay. for the last mile of the financial product that they built for you, which is the voting mm-hmm. piece for that last mile, they're turning to a side of the market that only offers quantitative, like just a ton of information, but too much of it. Like the two players mm-hmm. who offer, voting recommendation, it's a, it's a very standardized product. So they're going to spend all this time building out like, and by they, I mean like the asset management firms, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the investment places, um, building out marketing profiles and, and, and writing snazzy copy about like the latest spider ETF and this right. healthcare, you know, bond fund or whatever you want to call it. And then, mm-hmm. And then they'll get a bunch of information about you and then they'll try and pitch you on it. And then they're going to do all this work to get you to invest in the fund. And then they're going to kind of randomly vote your assets. at the end. That, that last piece just, it just breaks my brain. So it's your point, like really what we need. Yeah, totally. Totally. So, and the solution is right there. I mean, right there, easier said than done, but the tool that we've built makes sense of, who you are as a person and what your preferences are. And again, like mm-hmm. really just in the realm of proxy voting. Like I'm not going to tell you what your favorite color is. I have no idea. Um, and it also doesn't Great. matter to me. <laughs> but maybe, Fair maybe, maybe there's a way to, uh, to, to incorporate that then. But basically, like, sure. what do I know about your profile from what you've already provided me? And mm-hmm. then can I build out a voting directive that just fits that profile? Done, period. End of story. Mm-hmm. The, so when... You know, we have these conversations with these asset management firms. We don't lead with what I just told you. We we we, we talk about your emphasis on personalization and and customization, and you want to build these super high quality products. For who doesn't want to do that, right? Everyone wants to do that, right? Um, right. And then we we try to get them to face the, I guess the 
the oddity really of having all this quality focused conversation. And then for the very last mile, it's not. And we kind of just, hopefully if the conversation goes well, we sit back and we, we wait to your point for that moment of realization to happen, right? We, where we mm -hmm. talk about how tech can enable personalization. And to be clear between you and me, we're talking about AI, but it's a very buzzwordy thing. So I'm not, <laughs> not going to get into it, but sure. that, and then the other person around the other table says, you know what? That makes sense. Maybe we can find a way to implement it. And in that mm -hmm. moment, it becomes their idea. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of concepts in what you guys are doing that I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily understand or don't even know where to go. It's kind of one of those things where you don't know what you don't know. So how can you go and seek out that information, right? So yeah. where would you suggest somebody begins to try to understand these things, these concepts better um, to become more of more involved, I guess I should say, where do you recommend like beginning? It's a, it's a really good question because I found myself answering this in many different ways um, over time. Okay. I suppose the first thing is to take stock of how much you already know about the markets, how much you already are mm -hmm. familiar with your own finances. Like before we even getting mm -hmm. into voting and stocks and public policy, do you have any portion of, of whatever your net worth might be currently invested in the markets, mm -hmm. period? And I think for a lot of people, the per it starts there because, for example, even me, like when I started my career at Bloomberg, you know, they slapped this packet on my desk on the first day and were like, Hey, pick your 401k contribution. I had no idea what that meant. What is a yeah. 401k? What's a contribution? What does matching mean? Like, right. where is the form I need to... And then and then trying to get any questions answered about, okay, you, I get all that. Now, where's the yeah. money going? Oh, well, you know, don't ask about that. <laughs> what do you mean? Of course, I'm going to ask yeah. about that. And so, oh, mm -hmm. it goes... It goes to JP Morgan. They manage the 401k program of this company. Um, right. I said, okay, that's that's like one tenth of the answer. <laughs> mm -hmm. You've told me what door yeah. to knock on. So mm -hmm. like, show me more. Oh, well, okay. Well, uh, you didn't select your preferences. So we put you in a standard 60-40 fixed income equity, you know, standardized investment vehicle. Again, what's in the vehicle? Oh, well, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're, you've got some exposure to Coca-Cola, some exposure to Raytheon and, you know, whatever. And like some exposure sure. to NVIDIA. Cool. How much? <laughs> you got to peel back so many layers to get there. So I feel like Massive before money. telling people to go to any particular website or to jump into, you know, any resources, just, just trying to get a sense of like, where, where am I invested? Am I invested? Yeah. Am I not? Like, where is that money? Whose money is it? <laughs> Do mm -hmm. I have any rights over that money? If so, what are they? And if so, when can I exercise them? All that right. stuff is like, you know, once you start peeling back the layers, to me, those are interesting questions. Obviously, I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, recommend Definitely. that people check out our, our blog at trip.com. Um, mm -hmm. It's T-R-O-O-P.com. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of cool info there as well. The app is still alive and it will probably be alive for a little while longer um, until mm -hmm. we figure out what to do with uh, that portion of our company. Mm -hmm. um, 
but yeah, I'm also available. Felix at troop.com. Happy to literally answer any questions anytime about this stuff. It's, it can be a little cryptic and hard to find information. Um, and I totally, totally feel that. So, uh, happy, happy to jump in. What, or I have two questions. So I found you on LinkedIn, right? And you mentioned the 600 pound gorilla. Uh, you have a gorilla in your your profile name. Is that a, uh, a reference to, uh, this gorilla you're talking about? No, the gorilla comes from <laughs> the Planet of the Apes inspired, <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. you know, uh, slogan, I suppose, that made its rounds on Wall Street bets and other internet forums on Reddit and mm-hmm. elsewhere uh, during the GameStop saga, where basically okay. Wall Street uh, was referring to Main Street as a bunch of dumb apes. But in Planet of the Apes, one of the main points that the lead ape makes is he grabs a bunch of sticks together and mm-hmm. can't break them in half. And then it makes the they point strong. apes together strong. Um, mm-hmm. And so the symbology of apes and that. gorillas in general has always been uh, kind of like a, a wink. <laughs> uh, it's also our, the logo of our company is uh, Technically yeah, ape face. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now I was going to say that's a, the the perfect analogy for what you're trying to do is apes together strong for sure. Um, one of the the last question I want to ask you um, for wrapping up is uh, I feel like you guys have to be pro cryptocurrency and maybe anti central bank. Mm-hmm. So. I want to be pro crypto. The honest answer is I just don't know enough about it. I, I, I've watched the one hour and 57 minute Gary Gensler MIT lecture. Gary Gensler, by the way, is the, the current chairman of the SEC. Um, yeah. He breaks down and I remember nodding off a few times during that video and like rewinding and force myself to watch the whole thing and taking notes. And I get, mm. I think a good amount of how and why it's built, but I suppose the things that I still don't understand is in what ways are the main crypto players, not also just modern forms of centralization. You, you know what I mean? Like it's, the, it's, it's six it's or true. seven companies that essentially own the, crushing majority of the activity on chains Um, Mm -hmm. similarly to how it's the bank of england the bank central Mm -hmm. bank of europe the fed the japanese central bank and the chinese central bank that are just basically printing the world's cash reserves so i I don't understand enough about having an important opinion however the 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 one thing i will say is right around the time where we got kicked off and started building our company there was another kind of moment in time which was the mm-hmm. uh, constitution dow i don't know if you remember that yeah um which I introduced think- me to dows and it was another introdu- like an example of collective action in the market it's just another market um, okay dow stands for dist- uh, decentralized autonomous organization and one of the interesting mm-hmm. things about dows is that every coin in theory came with you know one exercisable voting right so they they just mm. they reinvented the C Corp with voting rights, except they did it on right. chain. And I was really mm. hoping to see a couple cool examples of that. So I would say 
I'm pro DAOs because I understand them as a concept. I don't know enough about mm -hmm. the general world of crypto, but I'm absolutely not opposed to it. I just don't understand enough about it. Yeah. I think the first point you made about how easily it could just get shifted back into a sort of centralized thing again when it's advertised as a decentralized blockchain, these things, you know, um, it's very obvious, I think, to a lot of people how easily that transition could happen. And I think it is a, a, a vehicle for why a lot of people, they're not anti-crypto, like you said, but they don't see the benefit in it enough to act on being being in crypto the way that, you know, crypto hopes people are, I guess, if that makes sense. I will say the marketing and the storytelling behind crypto is exceptional. And if we could apply even just a little bit of that to getting people to realize like that there's this today, very boring world of proxy voting, et cetera, that, that could be interesting. Um, mm. But yeah, I, yeah. I think, um, I think that what was the first example of Bitcoin being used to purchase something? It was to purchase pizza, right? Um, right. That was the first time it was used. And I don't know that I've necessarily seen a ton of super, super compelling examples of uh, real transactions today where they make use of it. But I don't think mm -hmm. that that's because crypto and the technology is bad. I think it's because mm -hmm. as individuals, there are only so many choices we can make every day. And if we have to start, a good point. you know, figuring out alternative ways to pay for things and alternative payment systems in general, it's, right. it just feels overwhelming, right? So if I think if it was made easier, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, totally, totally, gas fees and then the time it can yeah. take for a Ethereum, transaction, gas, so like, yeah, yeah, totally. Oh yeah, and and the uh, Bitcoin is like is splitting, right? Uh, in the it is in a couple months. Yeah. Supposedly, yeah. I don't know enough about it to have a conversation, but I, I saw that um, the Twitter sphere or X, whatever the hell you want to call it now, um, this is a pretty good place to go get like real time info on, on what people are doing in, in that space. But um, no, man, if you can you teach know, you, me how to navigate Twitter or X, uh, I'd be it, very grateful. It just so, feels like a jungle. It is. That's kind of how I feel about Reddit in general as well. It's one of those, it's an overwhelming experience if you get sucked into it. And um, it's very easy to disappear down rabbit holes because it is just a seamlessly like never ending click, click, tap, 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 tap. And you just go on forever and these subcategories and all this. It's, I don't know, it's wild. But you'd said that the, uh, the world of proxy voting is boring. But I, Felix, I definitely think that what you're doing is not boring at all. I think what you're doing um, is incredibly important. I definitely am looking forward to, to tracking what you guys are doing um, and what I'm sure will be a ton of success um, in, in the way you guys evolve and, and the way that you guys end up uh, eventually being able to help more people like you want enter that space and then try to try to make that space more fair for the common person. So I truly appreciate you coming on, educating me, educating uh, people listening and, you know, just telling your story, man. Uh, I think that you're a pretty, pretty epic person. And um, like I said, looking forward to what you do in the future. Well, I really appreciate it. It was a great pleasure having this conversation with you and um, a cool opportunity to take it in a bunch of different directions uh, that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. It's super thought provoking. And I'm going to be uh, relaying, I think the, the, the bulk of this conversation to, to the rest of my team and thinking about it um, for, for the next couple of weeks as I, 
catch a second wind going into uh, these next few weeks through the end of the year. So thanks. I really appreciate yeah. it. This was a, a, a lot of fun. No, not, not at all. I appreciate you coming on, man. And uh, this, this episode will drop um, not this Friday, but the following Friday. And um, I'll make sure that, uh, you know, if you, if you want, I can get you a copy of it as well. And I'll make sure that you know when it's live. So um, everybody, thank you again for listening to another episode of I Came With Fire podcast. Again, thank you to our, our guests for coming on. Make sure you check out Troop Felix um, and everything that they're doing over there. It's pretty amazing stuff. And uh, you have a good night. Thanks. What's going on, Fire fans? I Came With Fire podcast is sponsored by Red Clover Coffee and Sheep's Clothing, LLC. Red Clover Coffee is a veteran-owned company with small batch roasted coffees, and they just happen to donate to some pretty awesome charities. Whether you're into specialty flavored coffees, single-source coffees, or having a really cool coffee mug and some badass slaps, Red Clover has you covered. You can order ground, whole bean, or even coffee pods and get it all at 10% off your entire purchase using coupon code CAMEWITHFIRE. Again, that's 10% off your entire purchase using our coupon code CAMEWITHFIRE. I personally love their Blueberry Invasion and African Roast. That Blueberry Invasion hits the spot. Head over and get yourself some awesome coffee and support us by supporting our sponsor. I Came With Fire podcast is also sponsored by Sheep's Clothing, LLC. Sheep's Clothing, LLC is a unifying banner for all violent arts, disciplines, professions, and survivors of violent circumstances. Redefine violence. Both Zach and I being survivors of violent circumstances and LEOs in the military, we are especially excited to be able to offer you 10% off your entire purchase with coupon code FIRE10 at checkout. Whether you're looking for an awesome t-shirt, hats, slaps, flags, or MMA gear, they've got you covered. Me personally, I love my snapback with the leather patch surrounded by God's flannel. If you know, you know. That's coupon code FIRE10. F-I-R-E-1-0 at checkout for 10% off your entire purchase. Thank you all so much for supporting this podcast. And if you should feel compelled, treat yourself by supporting our sponsors as well. They truly make a difference for us. Now let's make a difference for them. See you on the next show.